here today. We want to welcome you to Southbridge. Hopefully you had a great experience. I was talking to a friend of mine who was visiting from out of town. They were overwhelmed by how friendly people were on the way in, and hopefully you have had that experience as a guest uh, today as well. And if you wouldn't mind uh, taking your worship program, looking in there, there's a little card. We just ask you to fill that out. It's the only thing we ask you to do today is fill that card out. And like Carrie said at the video at the very beginning, the young lady that was doing the announcements, um, if you fill that card out and turn it in, we make a donation to a ministry called Women at Risk International try and uh, connect people to Jesus that are in human trafficking, they've been trafficked, try to connect them to Jesus for life change as well. And so that's a way, and you play a part in that if you turn that card in today. And what we're going to do as a church um, is we're going to continue in a series we've been doing to the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 3 today, so we're about right at the halfway point. Today's message is called Lost. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and start getting there right now. And uh, for those of you who've already got that marked, you're ready to go, maybe you take a look in your worship program. If you look in your worship program, you find a bunch of information about things that are happening as a church. I pointed our guests there already. There's some stuff in there that's specific towards guests, but I hope you know as a church, there's stuff in there that's specific towards you as well, like things that are happening in our church. I know you already saw it on the video announcement for everybody who was in here when that was happening, that there's a picnic coming up. But uh, you know what will happen inevitably is that somebody will say like a couple weeks after the picnic, you know, our church should have picnics more often. And you just kind of go, yeah, we probably should. Read the bulletin. It's all in there. So the information of things that are happening, uh, make sure you check that out. They put that in there for a reason on purpose. And I'm going to pray for us. We'll jump into the scriptures this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, just meeting with us and, and writing to us. We know that your spoken word is a way that you connect with us and that you um, speak into this world existence. You speak into this world many times how we connect with you and that your very presence, you promise to be with us all the time. One of the ways your presence is through your spoken word and God, I pray that you would speak to us through your, your scriptures today. I pray that you'd meet with us. Um, I pray you'd use my lips to be a vessel for you. I pray that you would um, anoint my lips for this time, for these exact moments in this task. And Father God, I pray for each one of us that are here that we'd sense your presence, that you would encounter us. Please come here. Reveal your holiness to those of us who need to be overwhelmed with your holiness and reveal your warmth and your kindness and your grace for those of us who need to be pursued. And Father God, re- reveal to us your, your jealousy. For those of us who are in idolatry, and, and Father God, just continue to reveal yourself to us and to help us to see how wonderful and beautiful you are and what your grace is. If there's any that don't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And Father, I pray for those of us who do, that you would fan a flame in our hearts, that we would love you more than we ever have at this very moment today when we walk out of this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Like I mentioned, Philippians chapter 3 today, looking at verses 1 through 11 of the message called Lost, and today we're talking about what we're willing to lose. We're talking about losing things. Sounds like a discouraging message, doesn't it? But you think about a life in general, the decisions that you make. Have you ever had to decide between two good things? And then what ends up happening is, it's not that you don't think the thing you're choosing is really good, it's that you're afraid of the thing you're going to lose and what you miss out on. Or if you have two important decisions, and you, you know, one, you've got to decide what's most important, and so, but you feel like you're making this thing not important, and it really is important, and so you've lost out on something. Here's the reality. Every time you say yes to something, you've said no to a million other things. There's always loss. And I remember God driving this point home for me uh, when we first were getting Southbridge started. Church is about a year old, and I remember we were making some decisions as a church, and as we were making some decisions, some people were not happy with those decisions, and everybody liked that, and just in church world in general, I've been leadership long enough to know now, uh, if you want to get people upset, just do something. <laughs> no matter what it is, if you just do something, um, then some people, just because there's enough people, that not everybody agrees on stuff, and so we had made some decisions early in the church about a year in, and we thought we we're going to take us to the next level as a church, and so some people got disgruntled, they get upset about it. I'm sure if you didn't do anything, some people would say too, we don't ever do anything, but whatever. It's just Some people were upset, and about the same time, some of those people were disgruntled, my family and I, along with some of our extended family, we were going to go on vacation. 
And so we were going to the beach here in Carolina about three hours away, and we had rented a house, and some people from, uh, some of them went to our church, some of them didn't go to our church, and we were going to all meet up at this house and have all the kids there and have this big family kind of weekend getaway. And my wife and I at the time only had two kids. So the church was only about a year old. We had a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And we hop in the car, we drive for three hours, we get to the beach house, which that's a joy, isn't it? Driving for three hours with a one-year-old and two-year-old. Why are you laughing? I'm just kidding. I remember, but you, if you remember that, then you know that the greatest time as a parent with a one-year-old and two-year-old is when they're sleeping. Because you could be like driving, pulling your hair out, and you're so upset, and then you see them, and you're like, oh, they're just adorable, like as soon as they're sleeping. So nap time is like a slice of heaven. So we get to the house, this beach house, before anybody else in our family was there. So this is like pretty exciting stuff. We're actually going to get to relax a little bit. And uh, so we decided we're going to put the kids down for nap as soon as we get there. That's not a great decision, by the way, but we decided we were going to do that. And then my wife said, I'm going to go on a run. And she said she was going to go on a run, which I thought to myself, well, if you go on a run, I can do some work, and you won't even know I did work. That's what happened. So she goes on in this run. I go call a disgruntled church member who's upset about some of the decisions we were making, some of the things that were happening. I go in the bathroom, close the door. I start pacing around. So what I do when I talk on the phone, my arms sweat, and I'm talking for about 20 minutes, listening to all of the concerns this person has for our church. And uh, as I'm listening to all these things, uh, my wife barges in. Like, she didn't knock on the door. She didn't do anything like it. She opens the door 20 minutes later, says, where's Ella? Ella's our two-year-old daughter at the time, our oldest daughter. She's two at the time. And uh, I put my finger over the speaker on the phone, because you know I can do that. I said, she's in her room, like I'm on the phone right now. And uh, as I think back on that, I think about what was I really trying to accomplish in that phone call? What was happening in that moment? Because at the time, I was working at least conservatively about 70 hours a week. And uh, I can say that it was because it was for Jesus, because lives were being changed and things were happening. But really... Would I be doing the same thing if I was working a secular job? And it sounds worse when it's about money, right? But was it just about the accomplishment? What was it I was trying to gain? What was it I was willing to lose? Because it appeared in that moment that I lost my daughter. Well, my wife said next to me was what shocked me. She said, Ella's not in her room, which that wasn't the worst part. She then said, the front door in the house is open when I got back. And now I was freaked out. I didn't even say goodbye on the phone. I remember throwing the phone down. And running out of the house, and we went out the door that was wide open when my wife got back, and it went to a busy street. And we looked out on the busy street, and our daughter was nowhere to be seen. And my wife starts running down the street and just yelling, Ella, Ella! She's running down the street. I don't know where she's going, but she's running down the street looking for her. And I looked up, and the houses were kind of close together um, that we were at. And I could see the beach through them. And so I ran in between the houses. And I'm yelling Ella the whole time that I'm running. And there's these decks that kind of connect the different houses there. I'm yelling Ella. And I start running down this deck towards the beach. I see this family that's sitting underneath an umbrella. And the little girl, looks like she's about two years old, comes walking up to them. And so I'm running towards them thinking that's her. And I get there, it's not her. And then I look down the beach. And all I can see is a sea of people. It's just people everywhere. And in my mind, all of a sudden, I start remembering all the news specials I've seen of people whose kids have been abducted, different things have happened. I start to imagine all the worst stuff that may be happening to my daughter at this moment. And all this is about five minutes, but it seems like eternity. And I don't know what to do, so just out of panic, I turn and I start running back up to the house. As I turn and start running back up to the house, there's a sand dunes on the back of the beach and kind of tall grass, and this two-year-old little girl comes walking out from the sand dunes, and she's carrying her blanket, she's sucking on her thumb. It's Ella, she's just wearing a diaper. I didn't know if I'd ever see her again, so I just ran to her, and I embraced her. I couldn't believe she was there after all these thoughts that I'm having. And then I realized, Mom doesn't know that I found her. So I pick her up, and I start running back up towards the house, and this other woman, other people had heard us yelling uh, for Ella, and so they had been coming out and yelling Ella. They didn't even know who Ella was, but they are yelling for Ella too. And 
She said, this woman says to my wife, you know, he's, he's got her, he's got her, he's round back. And so Shanna comes to the back of the house and she sees Ella. As soon as she sees Ella, I remember seeing her face, she just starts bawling. And then she says, Ella, we thought we lost you. And then Ella says, mommy crying? You know, she's two. She didn't have any idea what's just happened. She just wanted to see the beach. So she left the house to go see the beach. My wife cried for 30 minutes after that was all done. And for me, what happened was it served as a, a metaphor Scott, what are you willing to lose? Today's message is not about putting family ahead of ministry. It's not about people ahead of tasks. Today's message is about loss. What are you willing to lose? We're all in a pursuit of something. We can be pursuing accomplishment. We can be pursuing achievement. We can be pursuing other people's opinions of us. We could be pursuing a job. We can be pursuing our family. We could be pursuing God. We could be pursuing all kinds of different things. Whatever it is you're pursuing, you will lose something. See, we have this lie told to us that we can have it all. You can't have it all. But we're all on a pursuit. Like, we're all in the pursuit of happiness, right? It's an inalienable right as an American. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But here's the reality. What you decide to lose will determine how that pursuit goes. You will lose something. It's God's plan that you lose something. Hopefully you don't lose the wrong thing. And today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Hopefully you've already found that. In Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. In verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3, the NIV starts off with the word finally. Finally. And then you look and you see how long Paul goes after that. If you look at your Bible, we're only at about the halfway point to the book of Philippians. He's got 44 more verses to go. And you can make jokes about preachers saying the word finally and not wrapping up. But that's not exactly what happens here. Then if he says, finally, some of your translations may say, so then, or now then. This is really a transition word, and what Paul's doing is he's transitioning from all the stuff he was just talking about, which goes all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 27, when Paul began to talk about living like a heavenly citizen. A heavenly citizen is a sacrificial servant. And then he gave example after example after example, four examples of sacrificial servants. The first one was Jesus himself. He said, who being in very nature God did not consider equality as God something to be held on to, but took the form of a servant. And he obeyed the Father and became obedient to death. Death to serve us so that we could have redemption, so that we could be reconciled to God. Even death on a cross, the worst kind of death. And then Paul talks about his own life, and now he's a sacrificial servant. And then he talks about a couple other guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus that we talked about last week, and how they were sacrificial servants. And Paul says, now, so then, transition, you want to know how to be a sacrificial servant? Let me tell you some things you need to know in order to be an actual sacrificial servant. I'm going to connect to that, but I'm really moving on to some new stuff. So then, my brothers, he's talking to believers, his friends that are at this church in Philippi. He's writing, remember, from in prison to free people. He says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So the guy that's in prison is writing to the free people and saying, rejoice. And he said this multiple times. It's interesting what he says next. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. (laughs) If you read through Philippians, you know that two times in chapter 1 and verse 18, he commanded them to rejoice. Twice in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he told them to rejoice. He tells them here in chapter 3, verse 1, he tells them three times in chapter 4 to rejoice. (laughs) Paul says, I have no trouble repeating myself. And we're going, we know. We see that. And that doesn't even count how many times he uses the noun joy going through the book of Philippians here. And apparently what's happening is he's saying this to these people because they need to hear it. And so he's writing to people that are church people, the Philippian believers, to the saints, chapter 1, verse 1. He who began a good work in you, but they need this word about joy too. Because you ever met people in church that they still lack joy? Maybe you're one of them. 
As we keep saying over and over again, rejoice, 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 have joy, have joy. I remember a time when I was in seminars in an evangelism class, and uh, they were teaching about how to evangelize. They're supposed to evangelize, and we're supposed to do this. And I remember I was in the back of the room, about 200 people in the room, and the professor was going on, and uh, I wasn't paying attention. I know that you never do that when you're in a room where one guy's talking, but I wasn't paying a ton of attention, but the guy kept going, this is in the imperative, this is in the imperative, this is in the imperative. And so about the third or fourth time he said it, I started going, why does he keep saying it's in the imperative? About the tenth time he said it, I thought to myself, all right, I might be the dumbest person in this room. Because I don't know why he keeps saying that. So, but I'm not afraid to ask a question. So I just raised my hand. If you ever feel compelled during a message, feel free to do so. But I raised my hand. He's like preaching. He's not even really lecturing. I said, why do you keep saying it's in the imperative? And he stops and he just kind of looks at me like, are you an idiot? Like he's just looking like, how do you not get this? And he says, because it's a command. And he's talking about evangelism. It is imperative. You don't, it's not an option. You don't just have to choose. It's not when it's convenient for you. It's, in the imper- it's an imperative. So he kept saying it over and over. because If you don't get anything else out of this class, get that. Paul's saying, rejoice, rejoice. Let me tell you how to have joy. Church people, he says. It's no trouble for me to keep saying the same thing to you because you need this. It's a safeguard for you, he goes on to say. And so in verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we, talking about Christians, for it's we who are the circumcision because our hearts have been circumcised and we need a new hearts. It was an imagery in the Old Testament. It was a promise in the Old Testament. He talks about it in Romans that your heart has to be circumcised in the New Testament. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Do we? Verse 4, though I myself have reason for such confidence, and now what Paul does and the rest of this passage he shares a testimony, only it's different than anywhere else we see him sharing his story about who he is and what God did in his life. And we see it in Acts multiple times, Acts chapter 9, 22, 26. But here, here he talks about internally what was happening. Not just externally, but internally. So if anyone else thought, thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> in verse 5, he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But, verse 7 is a transition. Something changed. It changed in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road. But whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I'm making Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, from which I'd lose everything. What Paul's talking about here is a life of loss. And he's decided what it is that he will lose. What are you willing to lose? See, the problem for us, many of us, is that we buy the lie that we can have it all. We think we can have everything. And if you think about the messages that are sent, sometimes messages sent through uh, passive ways, like the way that we live our lives, Uh, sometimes things that are preached from the pulpit, sometimes things that marketers tell you, is that if you just add something to your life, then you'd be complete. If you just add another thing, then you'd be fulfilled. Then you'd have purpose. Then you'd have joy. Then that pursuit of happiness you're on, it it would happen if you just buy this product. And if you didn't like that product, don't worry, we've got a new and improved version. You get the plus model or the gold version or the platinum one, or if you just added two of them, if you just took this vacation, if you just did these things, just keep adding stuff. 
And so then passively, you see people try to do this. They think they live their lives like they can have it all. You want to be the president of the company and you've got to work 80 hours a week, but you also are going to have a great family life. And we know that this isn't how it really works, don't we? We know that, you know, they, they package it, you know, so, so for the lady, and you can watch the Electrolux commercials, you see, well, you can work and be on three television shows and do everything, work like 100 hours a week, but as long as you buy Electrolux, you can manage your home really well. Let's keep adding. Guys, you can be at every soccer game and run the company as long as you have a Hemi. Got to have the right engine in that car. Then there'll be some satisfaction. That's, the, that's what gets promoted to us, and then we, it sounds dumb, but we believe it because we try to do it. Here's reality, and we know this. If you're going to be the president of the company and you're going to work harder than everybody else, you're going to put in all the hours, guess what? There's going to be loss somewhere else. Here's what else we know. If you're going to go to every soccer game, there's going to be loss somewhere else. If you're going to work 80 hours, you lose. If you're going to stay at home with the kids, you lose. There's losses everywhere because you can't have it all. The last guy we saw that was close to having it all was Solomon. The wisest, wealthiest man in the world. Had all the women, houses, all kinds of stuff. He says in the book of Ecclesiastes, I had denied my eye nothing that I desired. I gave myself everything that I wanted, and it was empty. But there was one thing. And if you want to know what the one thing is, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. But the reality is, if we're going to know what we're willing to lose, then we've got to know what our one thing is. And so our outline today for the message is simply this. You've got to identify for yourself what is the one thing for which you'd lose everything else. What's the one thing in life for which you'd lose everything else? If you answer that question, then it will answer the question of what you're willing to lose in every scenario. So you don't come to every situation and go, oh, here's the pros list for this and the cons list for this and these two good things, but this one seems better because... Now, what's your one thing? And if you know your one thing, it starts to make all those other decisions for you. Here's the temptation. We're at church... And we're going to talk about Paul's one thing. And you know what the one thing probably should be if you're a church person? Should be God, should be Jesus. Don't do that to yourself. Don't cheat yourself, though, with the process. Ask yourself reality. What's the one thing? Is it accomplishment? Is it family? Is it money? Is it fill in the blank? Examine your lives. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And so you've got to be incredibly honest with yourself today. If God's going to speak to your heart through this message. You've got to reflect and, and, and start to think through when I, the way I really live my life. Not what do I want the answer to be, but what is, the, what is the one thing for which I would lose everything else? And let me tell you, there are a lot of things that come at you that say that they're worth that. And Paul knew that. So he writes to the Philippians after he tells them to rejoice. They're on the pursuit of happiness too. They're not Americans, but they're on the pursuit because we all want it. We all want satisfaction. We all want joy. And apparently they didn't have it. And he warns them there are those that will lead you astray in the process. And so after he gives them a command to rejoice, and he tells them that thing again, and then in verse 2, he starts talking trash. <laughs> he's an apostle, but he's a smack talker. Okay, read verse 2. Three, he calls these guys that are his opponents three different names. In fact, in the Greek text, he alliterates it. Each one starts with the same letter. He calls them dogs, men who do evil, and mutilators of the flesh. He's talking trash about these guys. The first thing he calls them is dogs. Probably the worst thing he could call them. Now, some of you have sweet, cuddly, Spike or whatever, Rufus, whatever your dog's name, George, whatever your dog's name are. Um, and I'm sure they're awesome pets. And I'm sure they're cuddly and a great companion. That's not what Paul was talking about here. Paul's not talking about his homeboys, his dogs. Paul's talking about an animal that would roam the streets in Philippi that would be like a coyote, and it would travel in packs, and they would eat garbage, unclean stuff. 
That's why Jews oftentimes called Gentiles dogs, because they ate unclean stuff. They didn't follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And so who would let a dog into their house? You don't touch a dog, it makes you unclean. And so they would say this about people. Now, Paul's talking trash about Jews. The people he's talking trash about were Jews that thought that they were Jews more so than even Paul. Because what had happened was they were disgruntled people. And what happened is the church made a decision back in Acts chapter 15. There, were, there was a time period where the church was still being formed, and some people were saying that salvation was through Christ alone, and some people were saying that salvation was through Christ, but you also had to do some good works if you really were following Christ, and you'd be circumcised was kind of the telltale sign. And so the church decided, no, salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, and we know that's true. We see it throughout the scriptures, and many of you have shifted your faith from being in yourself, being a good person, doing whatever works you do, not being as bad as someone else, being moral, letting the moral work off the good or the bad and all that kind of stuff to the performance of Christ. It's not on your performance anymore at all. And if you haven't, then you haven't followed Christ. You've changed the gospel. And Paul knew that. And what had happened was that Paul, he'd go preach the gospel somewhere and then in would come his opponents afterwards and say, well, Paul, he, he told you about Jesus and that's great and you'd be a Christian, but... There's more to the story. You need to be circumcised. He didn't tell you everything. And that's what cults oftentimes do. And so some of you are newer believers. And you know, one of the most dangerous things that can happen is you know, the Jehovah's Witness come knock on your door. Somebody comes knocking on the door trying to tell you, well, let me tell you the rest of the story. No, the rest of the, it's right here. And, and it's in Christ alone. And you start by faith and you continue to live by faith. It's not you start by faith and then you start. And now in real mature Christians start to do it this way. And you don't do these and don't do that. And Paul knew that. And so he calls them these dogs. They're the worst of the worst because they sound so good. And they're men who do evil, although they claim to be the most righteous. And they're mutilators of the flesh, which is really a slap in the face for somebody who's talking about circumcision. I don't think I need to explain the procedure to you. But he's saying they are mutilators of the flesh, meaning their circumcision is meaningless. In fact, it's detrimental. And they're saying it's the very thing that would define you as a Christian. And so they're leading you astray. You're never going to find joy there. And you think about the different things that lead us astray. What are the different teachings that are out there? There's probably no one telling you you have to be circumcised in order to really enjoy Christianity. But what are the things that are happening? What are the messages you will hear when you leave here today? Some of you will be, uh, pleasure is the thing. If you just find enough pleasure, then you would be satisfied. Then there'd be joy. And that pleasure can come in every arena. It can be if I just ate the right meal, if I could just go on the right vacation, if I just had the right spouse, if I could just, and, and we think that if we just had this experience of some sort, it's called hedonism, if I had this experience of bringing pleasure, then I would have the joy that I'm looking for. Then I would have the satisfaction that I'm looking for. And you can find people at the extreme measure of that that are willing to lose everything else for the sake of that pleasure. You see it in a drug addict is the greatest example because they give up everything for the next fix, right? Please, pleasure. Well, most of us aren't at that extreme, but how many people have you? They have a relationship with their spouse. They've got kids. They've got a job. But for a one-night stand, give it all. Gluttony, how prominent is that in the church? And we go after these things because we think that's going to deliver. Don't be led astray. Those dogs, the mutilated of the flat, don't be led astray. So you've got hedonism on one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, we've got basically self-denial religion. And so religion on the other end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum would be that if you basically say no to all that stuff, then you're a really good person. Then ultimately, maybe at least someday there's going to be deliverance of this because right now you feel like you're really missing out. And so what happens with religion, some of us get wrapped up in religion, even come to this church, and you think, well, if I just am a good person and not a bad person, 
and uh, I do all the right stuff, and I, you know, I think things are bad that I'm supposed to think are bad, and I think things are good that I'm supposed to think are good, and I do all the rules, and then preach a message, and there's like three things you're supposed to do with every message. I don't know why it's always three things, but for some reason it's always three things. It's like, here's the point, three, two, 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 do that. And you check it off, and there's three things, and then there's three more things the next week, and there's three more things the next week. Maybe the pastor's really ambitious. One week there's like ten things, and then you keep going. And you get to the end of the year, and you go, man, there's like a hundred things I was supposed to do, and I didn't do any of them very well. Nah. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my wife. Well, I don't cheat on my wife. At least not physically. But we don't count lust. At least no one knows. And I don't swear. Well, not publicly. And they're just Christian swear words with like a couple of my friends. When we smoke cigars. But no one knows. I'm a good guy. And I give money. And I read my Bible. Sometimes. But I lack joy, don't I? Any of you who are doing it, you know. Was there joy in that? And then I think there's another group that's probably more popular in, in our community, at least. It's uh, people that think that joy is always just around the corner. And they thought when they went to college, there would be joy. And it's probably fun. But they still were missing something. And they get married. Or you just get married to the right person. And you get married, and it's fun that day, but then there's still something. Maybe when we have kids. And see so kids, and that's great to have kids, but didn't deliver. And so that's the next thing. Maybe it'll be retirement. It won't, just in case you're on that cycle. You keep doing the same thing. You keep producing the same results. And joy doesn't come from that. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. And that's what Paul's saying. You watch out for these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh. They're not leading you towards what I'm pointing you to. But then Paul's incredibly transparent, and he shows that he was deceived at one time too. And he talks about his own life and what he was going after. And Paul was a strong A-type personality. He was all about accomplishment, all about achieving stuff. And he gives this list of his characteristics. Three of them have to do with his birth, and so some of it I'm sure he was taught. The other four have to do with the way that he lived his life, which required incredible discipline. He says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reasonable confidence in the flesh, I have more. What a humble statement, Paul. Verse 4. But what he's saying is these guys that are coming after you and they're telling you what you have to do in order to experience joy, I've done what they've done, and I've done more than them. He says, Circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, I'm an eighth dayer. And so as a Jew here, this is slang for, I was born into a family that obeyed the law. They had me circumcised on the eighth day, just like the scriptures command. Of the people of Israel, if you were an outsider and you knew a Jew, you'd call them a Jew. But if you're an insider, you don't call each other Jews, you call each other the people of Israel. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. I wasn't converted to this. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, an elite tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so those first three things all had to do with something he couldn't control. Now he talks about what he does. A Hebrew of Hebrews means he grew up in a Greek culture. We know he was born in Tarsus, and, but yet he kept the Hebrew language, the biblical language. And so he knows the Bible. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Many of us, when we hear that, we think a hypocrite because we've read the Gospels or you've heard someone preach about the Pharisees or hypocrites, but that's not what the Philippians heard when you heard this. The Pharisees were an elite group of people that only a few would be allowed to be in. Josephus tells us that I think it's the largest. It was at about 6,000 people. And Paul was one of them. He got in the club. As for zeal, zeal was the greatest characteristic you could have as a Jew. You love God, but you also hate everything that's against God. He says, as for zeal, he didn't just come in and try and convert people that he thought were being led astray. He said he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the church, hated everything that Jesus' name was attached to. So much that when Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's the one who stands there and gives approval as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being killed. He's excited about it. He casts his vote for other people to be killed. He says later in Acts, 
And he says, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Paul's not saying he never sinned. What he's saying is he did the proper sacrifices to atone for that sin, according to what the Bible taught him. So he was blameless. He, could stand, he knew that before God, if anybody could stand before God, it was him before people. He had all the prestige, all the titles, all the stuff. If you're going to say this, some of these things don't mean anything to us. We don't grow up in a Jewish background. If you're going to put it in an academic world, it'd be like this. I graduated from Duke and MIT. I got an honorary degree from Harvard because they like me because I was born into the right family. And I've gotten journals reviewed. Uh, I'm peer-reviewed journals, and they've been published, and I'm the chair of a department, and I also run a business that made a lot of money. Elect me. That's Paul. And you can put it in different genres. Uh, you could say that, you know, as far as the wealth genre, I started off stock trading, and then I became a hedge fund trader, and I started my own capital investment firm and made a bunch of money, and then I started a bunch of offshore stuff and did all these things. and I had it all, but I was lacking something, the joy and you can keep putting it in different genres. You put it in sports genre. He's the MVP. He became a coach. Ended up owning the team. You could put it in the rap genre. For those of you who like that. I know there's a few of you here. Like myself. I like rap music. I had a million dollars in my pocket. Everything's rolling on 22s. Got mansions, pools. Everybody tells me I'm awesome. Except for me. Because I'm always talking about me. And me, 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 me. Ever hear the rap songs? That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying all that stuff. I had all this stuff. But I lacked joy put in the religious context this will make us more uncomfortable I went on all the mission trips every time there's an opportunity I served I was involved every time the doors were open at the church and I was involved in multiple different ministries I led a small group I served in bridge kids but it lacked joy that was Paul I was reading a book review a book I was thinking about purchasing this week just for leisurely reading and the guy has been a New York Times bestseller that wrote the book. He's done all kinds of travel the world. Uh, has done a bunch of stuff. He's a really smart guy. And I was reading, a, just a regular layperson was writing a review on Amazon. I was reading through it. And it said, it seems like the author gets satisfaction from accomplishing stuff, but he lacks joy. That's Paul. He says next, but whatever. Interesting that he chooses the word whatever after he's just given this list. I'm an eighth dayer, legalistic righteousness, faultless. I've done all this stuff, circumcised, you know, all those things. And then he says, not circumcision was counted as lost, not any of that, whatever. In other words, that list is not exhaustive. That list is illustrative, meaning you could put your list there too. And he's saying, whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. Interesting that Paul transitions here too. That he's using all kinds of religious language, zeal, righteousness, faultlessness, circumcision. And now he's using business language, profit and loss. These are accounting terms. He switched from religious to business. He's saying, whatever was my gain, profit, I now consider loss, debt. Whatever was my credit is now a debt debt to me. And so can you imagine somebody who works their whole life for retirement? And they're banking away, and they're putting away, and they're investing, and they're doing all this stuff. And they come to the book. They look at the ledger, and when they open the book up, everything they thought was going to be, they thought they had enough money to last the rest of their life. Everything they thought was going to be in the credit column, they actually owed And that's what Paul's saying here. Everything that was a credit, everything that was a profit, everything that was a gain has been shifted over to the debit column. It's now a loss. And what is more, he says in verse 8, but what is more? I consider, and you can underline that word for those of you marking your Bible, that's an important word. We'll come back to that. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. 
happens, what Paul's saying is, I know my one thing. The one thing for which I'd lose everything else. It's Christ. It's knowing Christ. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That's the one thing for Paul. And I consider everything else a loss in comparison to that. And he goes on and he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Which I think is a great British translation of the Bible. Rubbish? Like who here says rubbish? Pastor Jad read a passage of scripture. He said garbage. I consider it all garbage. You could translate it trash, excrement, waste. The King James says the word dung. I read one person this week that said crap. I think dung sounds a little nicer. I'll go with dung, in case your kids listen to the message. But think about what he was talking about. What is he calling dung? It's not, I consider all of my adultery dung. I consider all my lying dung. I consider all my pride dung. I consider all my coveting dung. He says, I consider everything. But what was the list he just gave? I consider all my church attendance dung. I consider all that pursuit of my family above God dung. I consider all that dung. I consider, fill in your list. It wasn't bad stuff. But in comparison to knowing Christ, I consider, you can go back to that word, the word consider means to examine. It means to reflect upon. The unexamined life is not worth living. See, when I really started to reflect upon my life, when I started to examine my life, I looked at it and there was one thing that surpassed everything else. And it wasn't even like a, ooh, that's good and that's good, but this is better when I start to pro and con. No, this is so good that even the other good stuff looks like dung in comparison. I want to know Christ. You know what's really interesting? Paul knew Christ for 30 years at this point. He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about that moment of conversion. He's been a Christian for 30 years. He's saying, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I consider surpassing greatness, knowing Christ over all that other good stuff. So he knew his one thing. What's your one thing? When you reflect on, when you consider your life, examine your life, what's the one thing for which you'd lose everything else? Is it Jesus? If it's Jesus, what would you be willing to lose to know Jesus more? Is it everything? I read a story a couple weeks ago about a, a gentleman that was working for a, a mining company. And before they started doing their mining, they had to clear this land. And part of clearing the land was knocking down a bunch of trees and uh, doing some excavating. And they were knocking down trees. And he was out by himself on this machine, knocked a tree down. It fell on his leg. He got pinned to the ground. He believed he was going to die if he stayed there. There was no one there. He called for help for about an hour. And what ended up happening is he cut his leg off. When I read a story like that, I think to myself, could I even physically do that? Like, not even the mental part of that. Could I even physically do that? Because it described what he did. He took his shoelaces off and then tied a shoelace around just underneath his knee and made a tourniquet. He cranked it really tight with a wrench. Then he took a pocket knife and cut through his skin, cut through his muscle, and cut through his bone. Do you know why? Because he decided his life was better without his leg to have his life than to not have life and to have a leg. Having life... It's worth losing everything else. There's a leg, arm, whatever it was. So for him, he decided, what would you be willing to lose to know Christ? The scriptures actually say, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Oh, Scott, that's hyperbole, and we explain it away, and we don't have to obey that because it's just hyperbole, but would you? Because what he's saying is the sin's actually hindering you from knowing me. It's coming between us. So you do whatever you have to do to get rid of that. Lose that. Would you? Would you lose a leg to know Christ more? Would you lose a dream? Would you lose a desire? Are you willing to throw off everything that entangles?
so we can put scripture on it. What are you willing to lose? Jesus tells some interesting parables in Matthew chapter 13. Just in three verses, he tells two parables. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he shares this parable. It's one of the shorter ones in the Bible. It's the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, interesting word choice, Jesus, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. So he lost everything. And it was joy because of what he got. He tells another parable. Same thing, different parable. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Verse 46. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He was willing to lose everything to get that pearl. What do you think that guy said when his friends went to him and said, You sold everything? He said, Look at my pearl. Look at the guy with the field. He's got joy. He just lost everything. His house, his retirement account, all that stuff's gone. Somebody's like, you're nuts. Are you doing selling everything for that? He goes, but do you see my field? And there's a treasure in it. It's the kingdom that he's talking about there. He's not just talking about a field. It's not that the treasure was worth more money than his house, than his car, than whatever stuff he sold. This was more valuable because he saw that as the one thing. What's your one thing? And what's so interesting to me about this is that Paul already knows Christ. He says, I want to know Christ. That's his one thing, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. But he's known Christ for 30 years in this passage. After 30 years, you kind of get old. Maybe you grow cold in your relationship with Jesus. It's not quite the same as it was when you first trusted Christ. I remember a few weeks ago, my wife and I got in a disagreement before church started, a verbal argument that we were having and happens to all of us some of you may have had it on the way in here to church today so i understand that we identify in those things and uh, we got a good relationship but we disagree about things periodically and uh, we were having an argument as i was getting ready to walk out the door and we talked for about 30 minutes we don't drive to church together which is probably a safeguard for more arguments <laughs> on the way to church um, but I, I need to leave i need to get up here and do sound check with the microphone and all that stuff before the service would start and uh, i remember we weren't done with the argument but we were, we were on good terms, but we hadn't really talked through everything. And I, you know, I was like, hey, I've got to go preach the word. <laughs> Such a hypocrite. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> I prayed. But anyway, uh, we, uh, so we've got to wrap this up. I've got to get up to the church. And so I go up and preach. And then we talk through stuff. And uh, we're talking. It's one of those things where we're unpacking it um, for a little while. And we unpack this disagreement that we had. And finally, my wife said, like a good wife does, she said, what, what's going on with you? Is it my issue? And uh, I said, I don't know. She started to probe. She kept going. I said, well, I'm kind of bored. Kind of bored with life, kind of bored in general. And so we started talking through stuff, and she said, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to fix it? I don't know. I don't know. Every answer was, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know. And uh, she said, well, you better get it figured out. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't sure what to do. And a couple days later, I left. I went to Dallas, uh, Texas. I was going. I was actually going to be with Pastor Josh that you saw in the video at the beginning, and uh, we were going to a thing for some young pastors, and a lot of times pastors don't have a pastor. My, one of my pastors is a guy named Jack Graham, uh, pastor of a church in Dallas, Texas. I was there while I was in seminary, and I was going there uh, through his invitation. I wanted to introduce Josh to him, and he was going to be speaking to uh, me and 200 other guys that were young pastors, just about ministry and stuff. And we were having this dinner together, and he got up and starts to share, and uh, he knew that most of us have taught a bunch of the passages in the Bible, and it wasn't that he was going to share some new passage that we'd never heard before. He said, but I want to share something with you that's going to matter 
It's going to make a difference in your life. And he went to a passage, one of my favorites, in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, what happens is that Peter's denied Jesus three times, and he gets restored to Jesus. And it's an interesting dynamic what happens. And, and Pastor Graham said when he got up, he said, Peter goes fishing in this passage. He's not going for a hobby. He's going to an old way of life. And he got real candid with us. He said, in 20 years, a bunch of you aren't going to be doing ministry. Let's be honest. Some of you are going to burn out. Different things are going to happen. He went through a list of a bunch of stuff. And uh, he started to talk about this passage. It has a bunch of funny details in it. You know, the guys are out fishing, and then Jesus is up on the shore, and he says, they haven't caught anything. How's that going for you guys? Your old way of life's not working. And Jesus says, throw your net over, and provides a bunch of fish right away. And then Peter jumps out of the boat, trudges through the water, leaves his buddies back there to do all the work, bringing the fish in, gets there. Jesus already has fish. Like, there's all kinds of stuff happens in the passage. Jesus is making breakfast there, and they're having fish for breakfast, which is weird to me. But anyway, they're doing all that, and Jesus offers them something to eat, and then he restores Peter. And he asks the same question three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. He says, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then do what I've told you to do. Feed my sheep. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments where a speaker can be speaking. It's not even necessarily that his words are the most eloquent ever. It's something you've never heard before. But it's like the Holy Spirit grips your heart. And the Spirit's speaking right through him. And he was speaking right through Pastor Graham at that moment to me. And he said, guys, Jesus doesn't say, Peter, do you love the adventure? He doesn't say, Peter, do you love the ministry? He doesn't say, Peter, do you love teaching? Do you love evangelism? Do you love your job? He says, do you love me? And it was this conviction overcame me in that moment of, here's the problem. It's you, Scott. Your focus has gotten off, and it's not on Jesus. It's not about these circumstances in life. It's not about that. It's about, are you focused on Christ? And so Paul's saying here is this. I want Christ. This guy's been shipwrecked and flogged. He says, I consider a loss. He's not just saying this is a loss. Like, it's, in my mind, it's a loss, because now no longer do these things count in this ledger. No, think about what happened with Paul. He lost his friends. He's no longer a Pharisee in the intellectual community. He's out. It's done for him. He's a Christian now. And those people are heretics, those Christians. He's lost all of his security. You see when he reads, uh, you read the book of Acts, he's constantly traveling everywhere. He's got no home. From all we can tell, he has no family. Maybe he was cast out by his family. We don't know. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I've been flogged more than everybody else, been beaten more than everybody else, been shipwrecked. I've got these emotional stresses in my life. It has been lost. It's been real loss for him. But he says, but it doesn't matter. I want to know Christ. I love uh, something I read this week. I had read it before. It's uh, from our own Anne Graham Lotz's book. Anne, thanks for writing this. She talks about in her book a couple hard years that she had, difficult things that took place. And you want to know the details of that, you can read the book. Just give me Jesus' book. But there's this paragraph that I want to share with you. She says, um, after difficulty, she says, I don't want a vacation. I don't want to quit. I don't want sympathy. I don't want money. I don't want recognition. I don't want escape. I don't even want a miracle. This book is the cry of my heart. Just give me Jesus, please. That's what Paul's saying. I want Christ. I've been doing this for 30 years. I want Christ. He's not talking about his salvation. And you think about some of the people he's talking to. Acts chapter 16 is the background. Lydia, the businesswoman. She's been a Christian for a while now. Philippian jailer. Been a Christian for a while now. Demon possessed gal. She's been a Christian for a while now. He's saying, but you don't have joy? Let me tell you, you want joy? No Christ. Consider everything else a loss. What are you willing to lose? 
What's the one thing for which you lose everything else? And Paul's saying, it's surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What does it mean to know Christ? Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, I want to know Christ. And then he tells what it is. What it is to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He would attain to the resurrection from the dead when either Jesus came back for him or he died. But he's talking about here, experientially. I want to know. I don't just want to know information about Jesus. Because I can teach you math problems. It doesn't mean you know a mathematician. I can teach you about mechanics. Well, I can't. But we can tell you some facts. It doesn't mean you know Henry Ford. I can teach you theology all day long. It doesn't mean you know God. He's not saying here, I want to know more about some characteristic of God. I want to memorize more verses. He's saying, I want to know him. That's what I want is him. It's the thing Jesus prays for in John chapter 17. That they would know, this is eternal life, that they'd know me. John chapter 10, when he's talking about the abundant life, he says, my sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's a relationship that's happening there. And what does a relationship look like? Someone who knows the power of the resurrection and sharing in his sufferings. Both. You think about those things. What is it to know the power of his resurrection? Doesn't everybody want to know the power of his resurrection? I mean, that's power to have victory over sin. That's power for life. It's power for freedom. It's power to live this life the way that the Christian life is supposed to be lived. And you think about the demonstrations of God's power throughout the scripture. God's powerful. He speaks things into existence. That's creation. That's power. But it's not the ultimate demonstration of his power. It makes the sun stand still. That's power, but not the ultimate demonstration. Jesus walks on water. That's power, but not the ultimate. Feeds 5,000. That's power, not the ultimate. Heals blind eyes. Makes lame walk. Does all this stuff. The ultimate demonstration of his power is he's dead for three days and then raised to life. That's power. That's power we talked about a couple weeks ago that's at work within you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. It's in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And that same power, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, is like the power that was at work that raised Christ from the dead. The very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Don't even try to accomplish my mission until I send the Spirit, and that's power on you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you'll be my witnesses. Not go out and do good stuff on your own. You need my power. Who doesn't want that power? Before you answer that question. In order to experience resurrection, what do you have to experience? Death. You have to die. Now, we experience that at salvation. We talked about on Easter. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been raised not by Christ, been raised with Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. But Paul's not talking about salvation. Paul's been a Christian for 30 years. He's now talking about experiencing it in his Christian life, not his salvation, but his sanctification. That's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And what happens is loss. You die, you lose, and then you're raised to new life. You want to be a sacrificial servant? Guess what you've got to die to? Yourself. You want to be free to walk with Christ? You've got to die to sin. You want to live for his will? You've got to die to your vainglory. It's a continual cycle of death. What does Jesus say? If anyone, all people, not the mature Christians, not the super Christians, not just the disciples, not men, not women, not certain genders, not certain races, not heights, not talent levels. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a daily death. And how does it happen? Fellowship of his sufferings. The sharing. Fellowship's kind of a churchy word. The partaking in Christ's sufferings. Anytime we suffer in this life, we've got identification with what Jesus went through on the cross. A small level of it. Doesn't mean we earn our salvation. We know more what it is to identify with him. 
You ever been in a moment where you feel like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ever been tempted? You want to do, if I just did this and I can get a shortcut to God's path? What if you just, if you just throw yourself off this building and then I'll give you a rule over all, you don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. We know his sufferings when we suffer. And we know him. And here's Paul, this guy that's this, suffered greatly. He says, I count that again. If it helps me know Christ, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, anything that I would lose, that's fine because I gain Christ. What's the one thing for which you'd lose everything else? Is it Jesus? Or is there something you wouldn't lose for Jesus? If so, then now you might know your God. So at least today was productive in figuring that out. Let me conclude by giving you this challenge. It's a quote I've shared with you before. It's by Jim Elliott, missionary who lost his life for Jesus. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. That'd be anything in this world. To gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I pray that you would draw us to you. You are beautiful and glorious, and I pray that you would help us to not ever believe the lie that we can have it all, but give us a passion, desire to have you. God, give us joy. Give us true joy. Give us true longing for fulfillment that is fulfilled in you. Give us pleasure in you. Give us satisfaction in you. Give us accomplishment in what you accomplished in the cross. Give us satisfaction in those things rather than the deceptions that come in this world. God, smash our idols today, right now in this moment. For those who are pursuing accomplishment, for those who are bored, you're not boring, you're exciting. We're, not, we're never going to be done getting to know you. You are an infinite God. You go on forever. We can never exhaust the knowledge of who you are to know the heights of your love or the width of your love or the depth of your love. We'll never know it. But we can keep getting to know it. God, draw us into you. Draw us to you more. Father, if there's any that don't know you at all, I pray that this moment would be a moment of salvation for them. And I hope for you, if you're, you're sitting here today and you don't have, maybe you're religious or maybe you've been pursuing pleasure or maybe you've been thinking it's just around the corner or if I start to give this church thing a try, what you need is a relationship with Christ. You need to die to religion and turn to relationship. You need to die to pleasure and turn to Christ. Not self-denial, but you turn to Christ because he's the one that's going to satisfy you. And so you need to turn to him for joy. And if you need to turn to Christ, what you do is you forsake your sin. Admit your sin before him and turn to Jesus Christ. Ask him to save you. Call him as, as your Lord right now. You can do that at this moment. If you're watching online, please do that. You can email us. Just go to our about section. You can email our church. If you're here live in this room listening to this or you're across the hall listening to this, please mark on your connection card because we want to help you grow in that relationship with Christ. And those of you who are believers, I hope you're still praying. I hope you're still talking to the Lord. And that God's drawing you close. I pray that he would fan in your hearts a flame to love him with passion that you've never had before, that you would want him more, more than you want a vacation, more than you want uh, an accomplishment, more than you want somebody to like you, more than you want a spouse, more than you want the right relationship, more than that you'd want Christ, and that you'd know him in the power of his resurrection, the victory over sin, the fellowship and sharing in his sufferings, and know him more. In Jesus' name I pray.